This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. future of healthcare is value-based, but there's something standing between us and that future, fragmented data. To succeed in APM contracts, providers need to access and exchange individual and population-level data so they can fully understand patients' needs, risk factors, and costs. EdFX, EMR-agnostic, interoperable, and AI-enabled technology helps providers unify and utilize data for a more complete digital portrait of patient populations. The result? Better clinical, financial, and compliance outcomes. To learn how EdFX's applications can enhance prospective risk adjustment and value-based contract performance, visit edFX.com today. Race to Value listeners, this week we are crossing the value-based healthcare Rubicon, and we're going to be talking about transforming economics and care outcomes. Have such an outstanding conversation today with Dr. Edward McKeeshern, Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Officer for Pacific Sources Markets in Oregon, Idaho, Washington, and Montana. And joining him is Jenny Gudapati, MBA, RN. She's the Value-Based Healthcare Program Director and Clinical Associate Professor at Boise State University. Just a little background on Dr. McKeeshern and Jenny. I'll start with uh, Dr. McKeeshern. You know, he, as I said, he's the Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Officer for Pacific Source. I mean, this is someone that has a storied career as a physician and an administrator and an entrepreneur. You know, prior to his work at Pacific Source, he was the Physician and Executive Director and later the CMO and CMIO for San St. Alphonsus Health Alliance. He was the chief medical officer and SVP for Northeast Ohio Community Health Plan in Cleveland, which had 1.6 million covered lives. He built and uh, ran a, a 2,800 provider practice. They had 8,500 physicians in their MSO across 30 states. He has done so much. And he's also the uh, associate professor of Uni at University of Utah School of Medicine. He's a faculty member at Boise State University with their value-based healthcare program. He has six patents. He's published seven books. He's published more than 80 peer-reviewed articles, and he was also the healthcare quality improvement consultant for the U.S. State Department and the Peace Corps. And Jenny is someone that I just absolutely love. I've gotten a chance to get to know her over the last few years. Of course, she's leading Boise State University's exceptional value-based healthcare program. I mean, she's really someone that's combining her clinical nursing and passion for business development, growth, and lean management to really create uh, curriculum to serve the future of healthcare transformation. She's active on state and national boards. She's very active in the Healthcare Transformation Council in Idaho for their telehealth task force. She's uh, on the advisory board for the Boise Chamber uh, to consult on healthcare issues. She's a strong patient outcome and patient-centered care advocate, and she just loves working with people to create innovative and efficient healthcare delivery solutions. This is an episode you absolutely have to listen to. I mean, we covered so many outstanding topics like 
like the value movement and care management, risk adjustment, uh, a, a concept called goal carding, which helps streamline pre-authorizations and really serves an important focus and uh, value-based healthcare transformation. And we talked about the program at Boise State University that really transform value-based healthcare leadership for the future. So without further delay, let's go ahead and hear from Dr. Ed McKeeshern and Jenny Gudapati as they join us this week in the Race to Value. Jenny, Dr. McKeeshern, welcome to the Race to Value podcast. You know, I had the opportunity to meet both of you uh, a few months ago at the HFMA 2023 annual conference. You had an outstanding presentation uh, entitled Maximizing Revenue and Value-Based Contracts. Uh, Jenny, you and I have gotten a chance to get to know each other over the last few months. And, you know, I'm just really excited to have you on the podcast this week to really talk about uh, the value-based healthcare movement and where we go from here as a country. So welcome to the show and honored to have you on. Hey, thank you, Eric. Happy to be here. And then, you know, always happy to have the privilege to present and speak with uh, Dr. McKeechern. So kudos to you for, for getting us both wrangled up here today. Really looking forward to this. Likewise, Eric, happy to, happy to be with you. Well, I'm definitely blessed to have both of you. I mean, you're a dynamic duo and you both are doing such great work in your respective roles, serving industry and providing uh, us with a vision for the future. And I thought we would start our conversation today and just talk about kind of the state of the value movement. I mean, value-based healthcare has really been at the center of the evolution and debate around payment and delivery uh, moving from fee-for-service to value over the past two decades. But the pace of scaling payment model transformation has been really glacial. And in response to this accelerated and looming insolvency of the Medicare Trust Fund, you know, CMS has reaffirmed their goal to speed the uptake of accountable care. You know, they really want to have all Medicare beneficiaries and half of Medicaid beneficiaries in accountable care relationships by 2030. And that's going to be a substantial acceleration in the pace of APM growth in the U.S. And as it stands right now, according to the Healthcare Payment Learning Action Network or the HCP LAN, only 20% of healthcare payments are flowing through these category 3B and 4, which are the models that are shared savings APMs with downside risk and models with population-based payments. So we definitely have a long way to go, and it's a really challenging time for the movement. I mean, the healthcare industry is still reeling from the disruptive impact of the pandemic. I mean, we see provider organizations that are facing the combination of supply chain disruptions and labor shortages and high inflation and the end of COVID relief payments. And most are really struggling to deal with staffing and the financial challenges that complicate investments and value-based healthcare transformation. So Ed and Jenny, I wanted to get your take on this 2030 bold goal for us to reach critical mass and accountable care and juxtaposition to some of the broader economic challenges that are facing the industry. I mean, as we're uh, careening towards insolvency in the Medicare trust fund, do you sense that the economic imperative for value will drive payment reform at scale? I really hope that it starts to drive it. I mean, I'd like to think that the majority of the people listening today already know this, but you know, last year was the first time in history where the Congressional Budget Office and Medicare both projected that by 2026, the Medicare Trust Fund would become insolvent. And even, you know, more critical than that is if, as we look forward to 2031, we're expected to be in a $500 billion deficit if we remain at our current spend rate. And so, you know, from a financial perspective, it's just not sustainable to continue healthcare spending the way it is. We've got to figure out a way to really reel that in and try and figure out healthcare in which, you know, not only are we focused more on patient-centered care, focused more on wellness and prevention, but really in cost-effective care. What are we doing to reduce overall unnecessary spending and really become that cost-conscious consumer as we move forward in healthcare? Eric, the, one of the things that I look at, um, it, it's a great question, and it is kind of like a great scotch. It has many different sort of echoes in your palate to think about. So this supply inflation, COVID relief, staff headwinds that 
providers are, are finding themselves dealing with now are real. And I think uh, in the shadow of COVID, we've crossed this Rubicon where a couple of things have happened that are really pushing our current paradigms of, of care delivery and care payment to a place where it's very different from what it used to be. What the, what's gone on there, I think, is several things. One is that the boomers, the last of the boomers, are leaving the workforce and entering retirement age. And we have a 14% structural deficit in workers in the next generation until you get Gen X uh, and, and later. So the millennials are actually a little lower in number. And so you've got a, a supply problem for healthcare workers. You've got infrastructure that's set up to work in fee-for-service world. And when people get to this 30 or 40% of land payment, the fee-for-service world and the fee-for-value world have a collision. Most providers are paid on a RVU basis. And if you try to do a value-based provider contract with a payer, and then have your providers being paid on an RVU basis or a fee-for-service basis, the collision just gets to a point where, where it stalemates. The third thing is, so that requires a bunch of different infrastructure to be put into place, both for the payer side and for the provider side and the contracts with the, with the providers themselves. The third thing is that as the COVID world shadow progresses, we have this, this huge shift in care in hospitals that has moved most of the surgical care that can be done in the outpatient setting to the outpatient setting, and it's never coming back. And that, unfortunately, was a huge part of the revenue stream for many of the providers. And those providers are not only facing that supply problem, the inflation, uh, the COVID relief, the staffing shortages, they're also facing a fundamental shift in the way the delivery of healthcare is consumed. Um, most of the care that can move to ambulatory care has moved to ambulatory care. And we have what we're seeing in the Pacific Northwest is the, the severity of hospital admissions going down, the pathophysiologic severity goes down, length of stay goes up, and this chronic complex system of care that takes care of people in the post-acute system is just not available in most communities. And so you end up with hospitals having huge uh, problems with uh, people who's, who sit in the hospital for a very long time are not paying very much, and there's no way to get them out. And so this the system has to resort itself to a very different kind of anatomy and physiology that that is driving these costs. The the LAN 3B and 4 payments will help that, but it only will help that in context of the, the operational reshaping of the health delivery system. And, you know, I agree, we definitely need to reshape. But, you know, I really like to look at, as we talk about payment reform and healthcare transformation, I really try and take the point and the views of the patient and the consumer. You know, we know that right now, 46% of Americans don't feel that they can afford their out-of-pocket medical costs or dental care. And as much as we like to, to say we're transitioning, we're not doing it at a rate that really makes it easy on providers. We are still financially incentivizing these services that do not necessarily track to best patient outcomes. I mean, I think it's going to take a huge overhaul of the entire way that we we pay for healthcare to move to this point. I mean, to Edward's point, we have come from a historical place where the only way that healthcare providers and health systems got paid was when people were really sick. And we had kind of this gold mine of procedures and testings and services that brought in the amount of revenue for the hospitals. But it didn't really do a lot to incentivize for keeping our patients well, for keeping our patients healthy. And I think it's going to take a huge shift and a paradigm to where we really start kind of putting our money where our mouth is and start financially incentivizing providers to do things to really promote health and wellness with their patients, to be able to provide funding, to work with community services and things that are really going to create a big shift. You know, we're starting to really look at social drivers of health and all of that. And 
you know, especially when we look at the inequities in health, there's so much of health inequity in our rural populations or our underserved populations, but we're not really financially incentivizing providers to be able to take care of them. There's not billing codes where they can bill to say, hey, are, are we working with these community services to make sure that, you know, our patients are taken care of? And so I think it, you know, it really pushes beyond the HCP land goals to really start thinking of healthcare, you know, more through the eyes of a consumer. And, you know, I think the best way and the easiest way to describe this that, that I bring to people is healthcare has really become the industry that right now we're the only one that's pretty much Yelp proof, right? When you look at even making a decision like where you're going to go out to dinner, we hardly ever just do that without picking up our phone, you know, Googling a cheeseburger and being able to see like how much is that cheeseburger going to cost? What is the satisfaction of customers that have gone to the restaurant and bought that? And are we really getting value in, you know, the meal that they're going to provide? And I think when healthcare can start looking at number one, thinking of the care that we provide really through the value of what we provide to our patients, I think then that the money will follow. And, you know, once again, it's, it's aligning that financial incentivization to really maximize the quality and patient outcomes that we're producing. Jenny, one of the things you just pulled up is, is a great idea. The, the whole idea of financial incentives for social determinants of health and the, the value of an annual wellness visit, which I'm going to ask you to talk about in a minute, but uh, how, how social determinants could sort of as an asset set or an asset class uh, affect sick care. And one of my good friends, Paul Harkaway, he's a pulmonologist uh, in Michigan. He's part of the Trinity Hospital System. Uh, is, is a little bit of an outlier when he talks about social determinants of health. And he he talks about social determinants of health as uh, a really critical part to be paid for and managed. But he his, I think, controversial thought is that you shouldn't let the sick care system do that. You shouldn't let physicians do that. Um, and he's a little bit of an iconoclast there, but I believe he's right. If the social determinants of health are identified, they're probably better served and, and managed by people who are not trained in the clinical enterprise, they've got to be aware of the clinical enterprise, but uh, clinicians, doctors and nurses and, and PAs and so on uh, are trained to deal with sick care, but there needs to be a financed and well-integrated system of social determinant care help that sits right next to the sick care system, but is probably done by people who are better trained to do that. Jenny, talk for a minute about uh, how annual wellness will play into this, this whole concept as well. Oh, absolutely. Thanks, Ed. You know, I'm such a huge fan of really promoting annual wellness visits. And depending on your payer or whatever, you know, we don't necessarily have to classify them just as an annual wellness visit. But if you truly look at providing patient-centered care, it's really difficult to do when we don't have processes in place where as a provider, you can really form kind of that relationship with your patient, take the time to sit down, figure out what potential risks your patients may have had over the, over the next year. You know, an annual wellness visit provides the opportunity to, you know, discuss uh, healthcare goals, come up with care plans where literally as a provider and as a patient, you can come up with year-long plan for healthcare to really maximize, you know, the outcomes for that patient. It's really, really difficult when, you know, you look at a traditional fee-for-service model where we live in the world of like RVUs, where as a provider, I'm, I'm expected to see 18 or 19 patients a day, but yet how do I, how do I take the time to sit down and find out What's going on with my patient? What type of goals do we want to set for ourselves the next year? And really be able to identify and mitigate the risks that might be apparent. Uh, let me give a, a quick example of that. And, you know, one of the things that we think about with patient risk is we are always thinking about diseases, right? What, what are the diagnoses that, that my patients have? Are, are they diabetic? Do they have COPD? 
But what you learn is so much of patient risks aren't typically covered through a diagnosis code. I have spent a lot of my career with one of my favorite patient populations, which are the rural elderly population group. And where I've really seen things develop is, number one, when all of a sudden we have, take for example, a married couple where there is a wife that has become the primary caregiver for her, for her aging husband. She may fill his, you know, his pill box. She makes sure that, you know, he's fed, things are happening. Well, what happens when that caregiver has a health incidence in themselves? Without taking the time of something like an annual wellness visit, we don't even have a way to realize how much risk could actually have happened to that husband who no longer has that care provider. And that's not something that we typically think of. How can we sit down with our patients and find a way to make sure that we are identifying risks like caregiver needs? Are they getting their medications? Do they have um, what they need to be set up for the best success for their health? And I think that the annual wellness visit really paves the way for that and once again, bolsters that relationship between the provider and the patients that they care for. So, so Jenny, one of the things that you called out there, this annual wellness visit is a, is a way to assess with it, you know, a health risk assessment uh, and then develop a plan. One of the things that I've been seeing in uh, the, the places that have done very well, uh, actually prior to COVID, but then when COVID hit, they, that acted as a, as a catalyst for them to get really better and, and deliver care around their annual wellness visit and social determinants of health in a way that that was um, outstanding. There, there are two places that I've uh, seen that are probably worth uh, your listeners hearing about here, uh, Eric. One of them is um, this this gentleman named Gene Nelson. He's a professor of family health and, and medicine at uh, Dartmouth, and he runs the Dartmouth Institute. And he's been working around the microsystem, but lately uh, with Gene, I've been I've been thinking about this thing called a mesosystem, which is a a system of care that is kind of like what you describe in the rural elderly, uh, Jenny, which is the ability of a of a patient uh, to have a map of their entire system of care across all the different care modalities, and then have someone, a project manager type person, or a daughter or son or some care worker help manage that system for those people who are not able to do that. And he calls that the meso system of care. The second place is that um, we've been working with a FQHC here in Boise uh, called Full Circle and uh, a doctor named Ted Epperly uh, has been uh, piloting that work in uh, a couple of his clinics to help those people who have, uh, who are often disadvantaged and have high needs for social determinants of health, but manage this system of care outside of the, the hospital or the clinic. And, and uh, they're having some success with that. And I think that is an important piece uh, of, of creating this race to value. Uh, the systems have to change a little bit. Well, I wanted to ask you both. I mean, if we're going to reach this triple aim of lower cost, improved patient experience, better clinical outcomes, we have to address chronic disease in our country. It's such a critical aspect of value-based healthcare. And right now, the total costs for treatment of chronic health conditions are $1.65 trillion, nearly 8% of our GDP. And there's current projections that that could balloon up to $6 trillion by 2050 if we don't adopt a, a value-based healthcare strategy. And we always talk about in value-based healthcare about the 5% of the population in a, in a senior group that incurs 50% of the medical spend, you know, and those high, high costs are attributable to poor quality and avoidable care, frequent ED utilization for non-emergency situations, admissions for ambulatory care-sensitive conditions, all-cause readmissions. I mean, a lot of these ACOs, even though they're implementing these care management programs, some of the more labor-intensive interventions are rare. Obviously, there's the aspect of addressing SDOH, which you mentioned earlier, which is still in flux about how much the healthcare system could really take on, but there's so much opportunity in engaging patients and having in-home visits after hospital discharge or evidence-based services for patients needing mental health or addiction treatment. So I wanted to see if both of you could provide some perspective about chronic care management and how the industry should be thinking about better managing patients that are high need and high cost with these chronic illnesses. 
Thanks, Eric. That's a great question. One of the things that we do, we've got a partnership with a medical group based out of New Jersey, but is in, in Bend called Summit Medical. They, they've actually just purchased the, the former Bend Memorial Clinic and have been for the past few years, actually, I think just before COVID, managing, and they do a fantastic job with this. The, the thing that you pull out there is that in order to really truly address this sort of uh, this mesosystem for chronic care, chronic complex care in the ambulatory setting, which is, I think, where we as a society are going to really uh, begin to make some, some gains or losses, depending on if we do it or not. Managing this chronic complex system of care that's an outpatient setting that doesn't involve the hospital is going to be critical. What we've learned, a couple key determinants of success here. What we've learned with Summit um, is that we have care and case managers and a, a data feed that um, our data feeds are starting to become more uh, real time with the, the promulgation of the, the regulations from CMS and uh, 1.122. We have to be compliant with a new set of data standards for fire, HL7 and NCPDP. And so the data becomes to us now uh, for a lot of our patients in real time. Um, we have uh, care and case management uh, that actually through uh, an artificial intelligence and rule-based and some machine learning work puts that real-time data into a queue for care. What we've learned is that the, the insurance company has uh, a very broad perspective on data and where it hoovers up all this data can get uh, placed into one queue. Our queues are good. Our care case managers are good, but we don't have the proximacy, the, the relationship with the patient that is uh, heightened by a strong provider relationship. So some is in a full risk arrangement with us. We actually work on retrospective lists of people with chronic care in a, in a value-based payment, and we co-invest in the infrastructure it takes care, that it takes to take care of uh, COPD, CHF. Uh, diabetes, end-stage renal disease, chronic kidney disease, stage two and three, uh, and a couple other uh, diseases. And we actually, together, our care and case and utilization management teams along the way. The other thing that we did with Summit, in recognition that we have a value-based contract, uh, they actually have very good data systems. We do as well. Uh, they, they see the patients from a different perspective. We actually did quit gold-carded them. We quit doing uh, utilization management review on their cases. Uh, and instead, we assigned those people who were doing, I think it's about uh, nine FTEs total. Uh, we actually assigned those nine FTEs toward looking at managing this chronic disease population of people. Uh, and we actually have learned a lot uh, by doing that. Um, and those those learnings um, have been promulgated to a, a set of clinics and a set of uh, outpatient activities that um, are, are addressing this chronic care a burden of illness in a very different way that, than we have with uh, fee-for-service partners. Cindy, I don't know if you've got a perspective on that at all. I do. And, you know, much to your point, at the end of the day, though, Eric, what you have to consider is this. So, you know, I'm a huge proponent for home health, telehealth, remote patient monitoring, because we know how much it, it moves the needle, Right. But until we get the financial incentivization to pay for those programs at the same level, it's just not going to happen. I mean, I have been in meetings with CMOs and CFOs where I'm like, you know, currently your readmission percentage is this. Your, your unnecessary ED utilization is this. If we really start putting together some case management programs, coupling that with remote patient monitoring, we can really drop that. We can get those percentages down into the single digits. And, you know, not that it's the fault of the health system, but they've come back with conversations like, we get that, Jenny, but that would cut so much into the revenue of our facility. We just can't make that happen. And so, you know, to Ed's point, until we find a way to really equalize the payment, for chronic care management, it's I just don't see that we are going to get the strength and force behind of what we could do. I mean, if you are trying to keep your doors afloat and recover from post-pandemic, I hate to go back to the old utilization, but heads and beds are what right now are still keeping hospital doors open. And so we need to start looking at a way so that keeping patients 
healthy, keeping patients out of the ED unnecessarily, putting in um, prevention programs and post-hospitalization programs that really help to avoid rehospitalizations, align with the financial benefits of providers that are trying to do that anyway. I didn't go to nursing school, and I know for sure Ed didn't go to medical school just to take care of sick people. You know, we have this inert, you know, philosophy as healthcare providers that we want to provide the best care possible. We want to give our patients the best life possible. And right now, the financial incentivization just doesn't align with that. We don't get paid until our patients are sick. We need to move the needle and pay to really help be able to create prevention programs and wellness programs so that we're able to provide health. And I think once that happens, we're going to be able to move the needle a lot quicker. So, so Jenny, to that point, I'm glad you brought the money uh, thing up because one of the things that we see, at least in our in our markets and areas, there's sort of a three, there are three components that help people move from this fee-for-service to fee-for-value world. And the payers that uh, your listeners work with need to understand this. And it, it and I'm happy to talk to payers uh, around this because I, I think a traditional insurance company doesn't really understand that. What we found is that, you know, for, for example, we'll, we'll stay on that uh, example of Summit. One of the things that we had to do when we moved to a full full value uh, payment for them, a land for arrangement, is that we would, so there are three things here. The, the first thing we would do is we would give them a PMPM based payment for, per member per month based payment for just activities to do uh, the kind of work that they need to do. That helps them move uh, the glide slope from fee-for-service to fee-for-value with their providers in a contract so that they can actually uh, be paid to do the right thing without losing income. The second thing that we did with Summit was a very conscious investment around systems of care that could take care of the chronic disease burden that you were talking about, Eric. So we we identified those uh, patients in the those COPD, CHF, chronic kidney disease, uh, end-stage renal disease, and so on, patients. And we invested in systems of care around that. Sometimes that was a provider. Sometimes that was a site of care. Sometimes that was a home health care work. Sometimes that was a dialysis machine that we needed to. And the third is the the, the third piece is this uh, value payment. While we've quit go, we've go-carded Summit, we actually still get the data on CPT4 codes and ICD-10 uh, work that they do. What the value payment to them because they're doing the right thing right at the right place, the right price at the right uh, time, they actually have made more money from our contracts. What that requires the payer to do is invest a little bit in the front end of that so that the provider can make it over the hump of fee-for-service to fee-for-value. But the provider has to be able to, to adroitly manage the system of care so that it is prepared to do value care and offer an arbitrage as that moves from fee-for-service to fee-for-value. I agree, Ed. And, you know, you talked a little bit earlier about this, but what you just said really reiterates is that need for bi-directional, real-time patient information is going to be so valuable. How can you effectively manage costs when a lot of times the databases that we're trying to give care for you know, is strictly constructed through claims-based data, right? We don't know what our patients are doing real time. We don't know how to do prevention care or whatever when we're getting such a, a small glimpse. And it brings kind of back as well to, Eric, you mentioned the HCP LAN, that that web, website just has so much information on it. And, you know, one of the things that we see is, that they've done lots of studies. And when you talk about alternative payment models and every, you know, people in healthcare agree, 92% agree that as we adopt alternative payment models, quality of care is going to go up. 85% feel affordable care is most likely to happen. But to the point in really trying to provide the best care possible, 93% of people surveyed know that care coordination will go up and will have to go up to be able to be successful in alternative payment models. Well, Ed, you mentioned uh, this this term gold carding, uh, and I wanted to uh, expound upon that a little bit. And that might be a new concept for our listeners, but 
you know, that refers to a process that's used by health plans to streamline the pre-authorization process for medical services. And it's a strategy that designates that certain healthcare providers are trusted or highly reputable in terms of their treatment decisions. And these providers have a track record of making these appropriate and evidence-based decisions regarding the medical services they recommend for their patients. And the result, the insurance company will grant them a form of expedited or simplified pre-authorization process. And when that provider is goal carded, it means that the, the pre-auth request is given a higher level of trust and you know they'll get the quicker approvals for the treatments uh, that they recommend. And it's really based on this assumption that these providers consistently make informed decisions that align with the best interests of the patients and adhere to evidence-based guidelines. And, you know, Jenny, you talked earlier about this exchange of information and having interoperability. And I know in this goal carding uh, pilot that you both discussed um, at the HFMA uh, conference, you know, there was a reference made to this HL7 specification called CDS hooks that integrates the clinical decision support and the workflow of the EHR and enables that data exchange between the payers and providers and facilitates the communication needed to evaluate and approve patient coverage in real time. And it's really a unique interoperability mechanism because it helps clinicians at the point of care by running checks automatically ahead of time and then providing the CDS information within the context of the EHR workflow. And I'm really interested in this concept of goal carding and advanced clinical decision support and interoperability and how they all work together to support an improved process and obtaining pre-authorizations and, and ultimately, you know, how that supports value-based healthcare in terms of provider experience and claims costs. Um, could you both maybe speak a little bit about some of the key takeaways from that pilot that you discussed with Summit Health Oregon and, and maybe how that might be an example of uh, an opportunity in value-based healthcare? Yeah, absolutely, Eric. It's a great question. I mean, you, you did a re really good job of describing what gold carding is because it's not really one thing. There's probably in our organization we have at Pacific Shores, we have about six or seven different ways that we can uh, help help providers who are doing right things using evidence-based medicine for their patients get away from the silliness that that we do as both providers and payers uh, around utilization management. And so the the I'll give you two examples. One of them is the summit uh, that I'll come back to, but the other one is in, in Idaho. Uh, there's a lot of legislation right now promulgated through AMA, which is not um, not wrong, uh, but it, it's, it's necessary, but probably not sufficient to solve the problem. The issue is uh, providers and payers both hate uh, utilization management work. And the goal is to get uh, patients better care uh, using evidence-based criteria. Um, and so, uh, there are a number of providers who do that job very well. Uh, in Idaho, uh, about four years ago, um, a lady uh, named Deb Roman, uh, who's a family physician, uh, convened a, a symposium. And one of the things that we were looking at was physician well-being. And in that symposium, the number one uh, thing that was identified as, as an actionable thing for physician well-being was, was to decrease the number of prior authorizations or PAs that we had. So Instead of you know running to the legislature and putting bills to, together, what we actually did was convened a table. And the first meeting was kind of a raucous meeting because um, it was a, a, a radical agreement that we both hated. Uh, payers and providers hated uh, PAs together. So all the uh, payers in the state, the major payers in the state, and the major providers in the state got into a room uh, in a uh, in a law office, which was kind of interesting. Um, and had a conversation that was kind of a contentious conversation. And what happened after that is, um, and, and subsequent, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversations is the people believed that uh, we were actually on the same side of this issue. We hated to do PAs that were unnecessary and PAs did utilization uh, that was consistent with evidence-based guidelines made a lot of sense. And so what we did is we got a table together that as, is still going. We meet every other month and we have talked about this uh, prioritization and goal carding work for a long time now and have kind of come to to three things. One one thing is that we uh, got a table together where we could have a dialogue. So that was really, really important. And we have a dialogue that's, that's honest. Sometimes it's contentious, but uh, mostly it's a dialogue where we try to solve problems. The second thing we did was um, the pairs got together and coordinated their uh, prior authorization grids with one another so that the providers would have one set of criteria that they'd have to deal with. 
Incidentally, we also invited in the Department of Insurance and the Department of Health and Human Services from the state of Idaho to sit in and listen to this, as well as the Idaho uh, Medical Association. We're not part of the IMA, uh, but we're a different group of concerned physicians with the goal of, of creating an outbreak of health with our physicians called Physician Wellness. And over the course of time, we, we correlated these grids together where we could, both pharmacy and, and physical health. And then the second thing we did was we structured those uh, grids into a set of criteria that were rules that had evidence-based. And the third thing we did is we've been working with a number of different sort of IT resources to place into, into action an infrastructure that connects through the, the various physical intermediaries that allows us to adjudicate PAs in real time. The uh, CDS hooks, clinical decision support hooks, is a part of the uh, data interoperability standards that have been promulgated by CMMS. But what it does is it, it's a little decision engine or an inference engine that sits inside of an electronic health record of a provider. And it goes and says, these are the rules. And remember in Idaho, um, the providers uh, and payers have the same set of rules. Uh, it goes and collects the data in the EHR and it adjudicates a PA in real time. So if the data is there that needs to be there to make this prioritization uh, you know, uh, adjudicated, the, the machines talk to each other and there's no human involved. And uh, the other thing it can do is, is say, you know, if um, one statin, let's say, is, is preferred over another, or if it's uh, cheaper to buy that certain statin at one pharmacy versus another, it, it can tell you that as well. So uh, CDS Hooks uh, uses that information in real time to, to drive that stuff along. Um, what we found in Idaho is that we decreased the number of PAs by about a third. Um, and then this whole idea of gold carding, when you move to land three or four, three B or four, where people are at risk with Summit, we were actually able to, to agree on, and they helped us with some of our evidence-based medicine prioritization utilization management data. And we actually agreed on a set of uh, criteria that we actually, in retrospect, uh, review with them, and we actually review cases with them. Since we've gold carded them, we've taken away those um, those requirements to do utilization management work and assigned those, reassigned those nine FTEs that we both had together, which were doing what I call silly stuff, uh, to actual patient care. And in the instance with, with Summit and their gold carding, the uh, ability to get care uh, was almost immediate. So if you're, if you're in an office and you need a CT scan or you need uh, an infusion of something, the provider doesn't have to ask us. We actually trust the, the guys at Summit, the physicians at Summit will do the right thing. And then we, we will review those cases later collectively uh, as a team to look at it. And it's, it's actually decreased wait times and increased access enormously for that population of people. Interestingly, uh, with Summit, there are a few drugs that were um, kind of rare, especially drugs that were very expensive. That Summit, uh, after we did the gold carding world, Summit said, hey, can you put a PA back on this? Because we, we think there's some uh, misunderstanding in our providers about how these particular drugs could be used. And we would prefer that a certain specialty uh, provider uh, pr prescribe those drugs and, and fuse them. So uh, I think that gets to the, the points you were asking about, Eric, that it's pretty interesting to watch uh, what's happened in the, the data interoperability world and what will happen uh, with CDS hooks. And it's also interesting to see how that actually uh, helps providers quit doing silly stuff. Well, there's one more aspect of uh, your presentation that I really wanted to dive into. Uh, you had discussed at HFMA this importance of risk recapture and accurate charting and care reflection for success in value-based healthcare. And so much of the industry right now is focused on risk adjustment as a key to business success and value-based payment arrangements, primarily because it has impact on the financial benchmark and the premium dollars that flow through the plan. And while that's super important in taking risk and ultimately achieving a, a healthy MLR, I mean, risk adjustment is so much more than just a lever for revenue. It's also the program that risk-bearing providers utilize to reflect the burden of illness in a senior population to the highest level of specificity, so appropriate resource allocations can be made, you know, in terms of care management interventions and, and other aspects of care delivery. And ultimately, capturing risk 
is more than just a RAF score. I mean, it's setting up the care plan to drive the success for the patient and allows the provider and the health plan to understand risk in a way that enhances the insight into complex medical and even social factors that drive case management, disease management, practice resources, SDOH, quality improvement, et cetera. So I wanted to ask you both if you could expound on this aspect of risk recapture and, and an accurate charting strategy to, re to reflect true burden of illness in a population and how that identification of rising risk uh, patients can uh, drive value-based healthcare performance. And, you know, what should our listeners be thinking about in terms of their own population coding documentation programs when it comes to risk stratification and, and the, the care interventions and technology and capital and staffing and all of that? Sure, Eric. So when we were discussing this in the presentation, once again, it goes back to, you know, that annual wellness visit or setting up that relationship between provider and patient. And to your point, it's a lot more than just the RAF score, right? One thing I think that providers aren't aware of is, you know, the RAF score resets every year anyway. You know, just because you coded a patient as a left leg amputee last year doesn't mean if you don't put that on your care plan that it's going to automatically show up. You know, according to our, our risk scoring, um, that left leg can grow um, back overnight. And so, you know, it's just an example of the importance of really determining the risks for your patient. But I'm glad you brought up that the patients are a lot more than RAF score. Risk determination and really care plan management can go so much more. Yes, we have these disease risks, but in order to properly code or, or to do that, we have to incorporate these risks into the care planning of our patients. And this is where we can really, as organizations, put processes in place where 100% of the staff understands the importance of patients coming in for you know, their annual wellness visit, making sure that all of the information is sought out. But more importantly, if you're really trying to mitigate risk, I think there's also a lot to be learned in how as care providers, we approach that with patients. I think so much of really risk mitigation is having shared decision-making processes with our patients. You know, I think one of the best examples for that is talking to patients that might have diabetes, right? As providers, we have the tendency to, you know, set goals that, hey, you know, for the next year, I want your A1C to get here. As a patient, I don't really care what an A1C is, right? I, I don't understand it. I know it is just kind of a gauge of where my blood sugar is. But what about in our care planning, if we really discuss and educate with our patients? Maybe as a patient, the biggest goal that I might have for the health of my year might be whether or not I'm going to make it to every single one of my grandson's soccer games. And so as a provider, what type of healthcare goals and healthcare planning can I do so that the patient sees I'm engaged and I want to provide for them, them to be able to hit that goal? What are the true health goals that we can come up with together so that we are providing the best health quality for our patients? We have an understanding of what this next year wants to get to. Because I think what you can find statistically is really when we do care planning and risk assessment as a team between provider and between a patient, it brings into this whole um, idea of patient accountability, right? As a patient, when I know my provider is working with me to get to the health goals that are important to me, we know that patients are going to be a lot more determined than just having a sticky note that says, I want an A1C level here. And so I think if we're really looking as an organization to really identify and mitigate that risk, it's a totally different process um, orientation in really getting into 100% of the staff 
understanding the importance of these visits with our patients to have reflective care planning to mitigate the risk that is presented. Yeah, what one of the things there is the 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 RAF score, but both uh, the individual and Medicare are risk adjusted. And for the Medicare wise, the risk score capture done done accurately uh, really does help the total contract yield for a provider in uh, in the Medicare space. So it may end up making that Medicare uh, contract more valuable. For example, point one change in a uh, RAF adjustment factor for a thousand patients is worth about a million dollars to a uh, payer. So that's that's real money and it can help uh, fund some of the other activities around the work that we uh, are required to do for care and case management in a value-based contract. Well, I wanted to shift gears now uh, and talk about reskilling and upskilling the workforce for this future of value-based healthcare and population health man management. And, you know, Jenny, you're the director of Boise State University's value-based healthcare program. And Dr. McKeeshern, you're program founder and you're on the faculty. And I can't say enough good things about the amazing program there at Boise State. I mean, the university is really reshaping healthcare education through this lens of population health and risk mitigation and finance with this aim of delivering a quality real world experience that's focused on that patient journey. And this is a program that's run in collaboration with the Healthcare Financial Management Association or HFMA. It's one of the five educational programs in the country that's accredited for population health management by CAMI, which is the Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Management Education. And recently, the Boise State College of Health Sciences Online Master of Population Health Systems Management Program uh, received national attention by winning the CAMI George and Regina Herzlinger Innovation Education Award. So I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about the Boise State Value-Based Healthcare Program and how it's preparing future healthcare visionaries. And also, what are the advantages of participating in an interactive learning community it's focused on healthcare innovation like all the things we've been talking about that can really transform the current system to improve the health of communities and the patients that we serve well i can tell a story i mean one time jenny and edward were sitting at, at i think it was a breakfast table and i was complaining about how um when we had had to hire a patient or a, a uh, employee from Bo boise state they weren't prepared to do the work that we needed them to do in, in either a provider setting or a payer setting. And Jenny said to me, well, you need to teach a program. And I said, well, okay, let's do it. And so that that came out of this uh, conversation around we we have a, a need with this population health management skill set that is is deficient in many of our graduates. And one of the things that, that uh, Jenny asked us to do was a thing called a scope and sequence diagram where, where you, you actually have the scope of what a learner needs to learn to be able to be proficient in this work. And then a sequence of how that knowledge builds on itself. And the interesting thing about this uh, population health and systems management uh, masters at BSU is that I, I don't think many people at all are faculty, uh, full-time full faculty at Boise State. In other words, we're all people who live in this industry every day. And so the courses that we teach are informed by the relevancy of the work that we do and the people who who come out of this program, by the way, we've had some stellar students, are coming out of this program uh, as leaders in this field. They're, some of them are leaders going into it. We have mid-career uh, accountants and uh, finance managers and doctors, uh, lawyers and people who do work in this space, entrepreneurs, business owners, uh, and they're coming out of this thing really amazing, sort of full of knowledge. It is this juncture between um, actuarial sciences and epidemiology and population health studies that really moves this work to a complete hold that somebody can actually manage. And Jenny, hats off to you for, for seeing that need and, and uh, creating out of almost nothing this course. You've done a really great job there. So, so it's interesting how the program kind of came about, uh, Eric, is, you know, there is, you know, to Ed's point, really a widening gap in a lot of the sense. It's getting a lot of attention right now in higher education where graduates 
from college aren't necessarily ready to hit the door running when they enter the workforce. And I happen to be fortunate enough to listen to um, our Boise State University. She was the new president at the time, Dr. Marlene Trump. And she was giving a presentation to our board of ambassadors about like, we have to really start figuring out how can we marry business with higher education to, to, you know, better create programs that meet these workforce demands. And I took it as the green light. And so that very afternoon, I called the Healthcare Financial Management Association and I'm like, I have an idea. Would you guys be willing to help us create a master's degree program where we really look at it through the eyes of industry need? And it was less than 24 hours, I think, when HFMA came back and said, absolutely, we're in. And so, you know, I reached out to Ed, I reached out to several colleagues of mine across the country and said, hey, we are doing something completely different. To start from the bottom, grounds up, and create a population health management program with one of the most respected healthcare association countries, or I mean, associations in the country was truly phenomenal. And it allowed us to do things from the view of healthcare needs. And so, you know, to Ed's point, I technically am the only Boise State faculty member in the program. And I use that loosely. I've only been at Boise State University for just under five years. I am a nurse by background. All of our faculty that teach in this program are real world professionals, real world experts. And so the cool thing about having this focus was, you know, when we were in our first meetings of how are we going to build this before we ever sat down and came up with a curriculum map and me, the rest of the team, we sat down and we said, what is it? Not that we want to teach. What is it really that we want to produce? And I think before we ever even created a class list, we came up with mission, vision, and purpose statements of what we wanted to create. We knew we wanted to create what we call healthcare transformationalists, the next set of healthcare leaders that would have those tools in their toolbox to be able to create the change that all of us believed in. And I think what's been the most exciting thing about creating this program is on top of the nine industry expert faculty that teach all of the courses in this, each week when we discuss the certain topics, we have reached out to industry experts across the country who are really top notch in that subject. So on top of our faculty, we have over 75 guest lectures that have contributed to the curriculum of this program. So if you look at it, we have had over 80 of the top healthcare minds in the country that helped develop the teachings of this program. And it is so, you know, untraditional. It is not theory-based, but it's really um, innovated in the, in the sense that what our students are learning, I think the feedback from them is they're putting into practice every day. They're, we're hearing from the people that are making change happen and taking what they've learned to teach others. And it's, a, it's an executive style program that, you know, to Ed's point, we have some of the most amazing students in this program that we could have ever had. And I'm learning as much from our diverse group of students. We have them from very different types of backgrounds. We have students that are from that financial lens. We have nurses, we have social workers, we have community health worker. We also have physicians and healthcare executives. And so, you know, in order to make population health management happen, it takes an entire delivery team. And so to teach this course, and then, you know, as we look at the students we're going to admit, we have members of the entire healthcare team. So every week we're seeing all of the lenses and the value that they can bring and add to the discussion. And it's just been 
a really fun and amazing program to do. And just so grateful for the fortitude and looking ahead that HFMA had and was willing to partner with little Boise State University to create this program. Um, just really, really grateful for the partnerships, you know, and then for Cami to recognize population health management as a need in education and start an accreditation and certification program has been absolutely reassuring that this is the direction we need to go. This is the type of education that's really going to help figure out the mystery of transitioning to value-based care. And so I'm, I'm grateful you brought up and allowed us to talk a little bit about our program, Eric. Well, it's just such an outstanding story, and it's so needed in our industry. I mean, we talk so much in value-based healthcare and health equity about structure and the policy efforts to advance APMs and the economics and, you know, and of course, care delivery, redesign and transformation. But we can't execute on that agenda if we don't have a way to reskill and upskill the workflow workforce to create that high value system. And you have to have educational solutions that are out there that can scale and provide a skill set that is lacking right now in, in, in programs. And, you know, I, I really see that as like this force multiplier or an impedance for our industry is, you know, having this robust convergence between higher education and in the healthcare industry to really support the transformation that's underway. I mean, we're talking about a completely new ball game when it comes to value-based healthcare and how we go about doing it. And it's also going to require leadership. And I thought that's something we could wrap our conversation on today, you know, the path forward in the post-pandemic era. You know, we have to transform our in industry so it can best serve patients and the workforce and the communities uh, through this informed decision-making and to move to value-based healthcare. I mean, we have to have all the things that we talked about, you know, high-touch, relationship-based, tech-enabled, interdisciplinary care. We have to span the boundaries of the physical healthcare setting. We have to be patient-centered. We have to go upstream and address SDOH. You know, we have to change the payment paradigm and, and get away from fee-for-service. We have to have a shared vernacular about what value-based healthcare even means because there's still confusion and the industry and even in the, uh, the the patient communities about what this what we're really talking about here and it's just such a seismic shift and it just requires this recalibration of how we think it it requires as i said the this reskilling and upskilling and and just really an elevation of consciousness uh that i think for you know for everyone involved so i wanted to see if you could provide your parting thoughts on the leadership skills that are going to be necessary in the years ahead to transform our healthcare system. I mean, given all the challenges and value-based healthcare transformation, what tips can you provide healthcare leaders and clinicians to drive innovation without uh, being disillusioned? I think you've asked a really important question. And I think the um, one of the things we try to do with the uh, masters that uh, we teach at Boise State as Jenny said, was to try to figure out what the skill sets were that the students needed to come out with. And we we recognized that there was this intersectionality between epidemiology, finance, and clinical thoughts that needed to be embodied in a leader who could convene a team of people who could work in those, those areas. You know, I'll make a plug for the continuation of the quality improvement work. I mean, I grew up in the the healthcare world when when uh, W. Edwards Deming and Joseph Duran were, were kicking that off pretty hard back in the late 80s. And I think that the the confluence of epidemiologic thought, finance, actuarial thinking, and clinical care uh, is going to be really needed for us to restructure our, our uh, teams and, and how we actually do this work. We can't keep doing the kind of care that we've been offering back to the point you opened this with, Eric, because it's going to be too expensive. We've got to do things differently. With all the things that have come along uh, and the lessons we've learned about communicating in COVID, uh, I think we can get there, but it takes a new kind of leader, a new kind of person to think differently about how we uh, do the work that we do. Agree. And to kind of piggyback on that, I think the other thing that we need as future leaders in healthcare, I would say first and foremost, we need people with grit. We need people that are truly leading in healthcare because of the desire and passion to take better care of people, 
to want to make that difference, to understand that healthcare and, you know, not only for ourselves, but for our family members is some of the most difficult things that we do as we go through life. And as healthcare leaders, we need to put ourselves through the views of the patients and realize they, these are the most important decisions that many people will make when you're looking at big healthcare de decisions. And so as future healthcare leaders, we have to understand that patient outcome-driven healthcare is first and foremost important. We also have to realize that it's got to come at less of a cost. Healthcare right now is the um, number one reason for bankruptcy in America. And so how do we tackle this in a way that we're providing the best healthcare, but trying to do it from a cost-effective perspective? And I think that's a real shift. And I think it's going to take a lot of brave, innovative individuals that are willing to, to take on this challenge, but kind of that glass is half full kind of person, because I think right now we are entering into the most exciting time we will ever see in healthcare. And I think of the students that are going through our program, and they are going to be really the change makers. They're going to get this figured out. And so for me, I hope that we are creating healthcare leaders with passion that are willing to fight the fight and are smart enough to get things figured out and get us on the right track so that we don't hit the care solvency um, as a continued problem in the future. Well, Jenny and Dr. McKeesher, and I, I can't thank you enough for joining us this week on the Race to Value. I am so inspired after our conversation today, uh, just your ideas about leadership and transformation and innovation. And I know our listeners are going to be better for it. Jenny, how can our listeners find out more about the Boise State Healthcare Program? And uh, I wanted to ask you that, uh, you know, just as we wrap up and then, you know, any other thoughts you have in, in, in terms of uh, maybe some of our listeners that they have any questions? Absolutely. So the easiest way is, you know, to just go to your search engine and type in um, Boise State University Population and Health Systems Management. That will bring you right to our program, um, and I guess in final thoughts, if you're thinking about a master's in healthcare administration or an MBA for healthcare, really consider the Boise State program because we take the best of both of those worlds and have combined them. And more importantly, you get to learn from amazing faculty like Dr. McEachern and the other members that have really helped to create a program that we see really hits the needs and addresses the concerns of healthcare in the future. And so um, that's about the best way to get a hold of us, Eric. Well, thank you so much for that. And uh, Dr. McKeesher, and, uh, you know, it has been a real pleasure getting to connect with you after we uh, met at HFMA and uh, feel free to provide any other uh, parting thoughts as well as we uh, finish up our conversation. Yeah. Look, uh, thanks for having us on today. Um, these are really important topics and I'm glad you're, podcast has the number of listeners it has. Uh, you can contact me through BSU as well. Um, that's an easy way to do it. And uh, do take a look at the program if you're interested there. Well, thank you both for joining us this week on the Race to Value. I think our listeners are uh, are, are definitely going to learn a lot. Uh, you know, I know I have, and I'm so very grateful to have you both on this week. And uh, it was an outstanding conversation. Thank you very much, Eric, for having us. Thanks so much, Eric.